I'm going to turn off my internet and put 4G on instead. Just a second. Where the bloody hell are you? Hi, I'm Alan Hill, the nostalgic vagabond. I lived out of a backpack for many years during my 20s and some 30s. I'm less of a nomad these days. In this podcast series, I'm catching up with old friends, wonderful people I've met on the traveller's trek. And what better time is there to catch up, reminisce, and see how everyone is getting on in 2020? I hope you enjoy hearing about our journeys as much as we've enjoyed sharing. My guest on this episode is Jay Canning. Born and raised in London, Jay now resides in Macedonia with his family. I'm zooming in from England to talk with Jay about his adventures in California, the Balkans, Russia, and other fine destinations. Beer connoisseur, intelligent adventurer, and polyglot, Jay is basically a legend. Oh, 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 you're moving again. Okay. Okay, it's all part of the adventure, mate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Good to see you. Yeah, and you. And you. It's been a long time. It has been. It has been. I don't, when was the last time we saw each other? Uh, I tell you what, do you remember Matt Burnett? You met him in January 2011. We went round um, the Sam Smith's pubs in central London. We were at uh, Princess Louise. That's it? Yes, Holden, we, we right? were in, yes, correct. And we ended up in some basement dance discotheque or something <laughs> um, and we had the special old 1967 or 69 sanyo uh, super 8 that we were taking video on oh wow yeah 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 yeah. i was just speaking with him on the phone around lunch i was actually trying to remember then when the last time i saw you was and i think it was a few years later not too long before you went on your trans-siberian trek Train journey, I guess, is a more appropriate way of putting it. And we were at Weatherspoons on Putney Bridge. That's right. Properly spontaneous. The rocket. I think it was 2013. Yeah. Would that, would that be true? Yes, 2013. That was my Trans-Siberian year. Was it obviously later on in the year you did that? I, I departed in August 2013. Right. So we must have met in the summer because I remember it being a long evening. So it might have been a June. So it might have been just before. Could have been. Yeah. I think that was the last time I saw you. Which doesn't actually seem like that long ago, but it's almost seven years, man. Yeah, that's nuts. That's crazy. Bloody hell. <laughs> I know, a lot's, a lot's changed. Where are you living now? Uh, all right, now I'm in Skopje, Macedonia. North Macedonia now, they call it. <laughs> okay, yeah. it's, it's, been, it's been altered. <laughs> Please forgive my error in the intro. It is indeed now North Macedonia and no longer Macedonia. We're not here to start a diplomatic row. And you're enjoying it there. Yeah, yeah, it's nice. It's great here. Settling down. Yes, it, settling down in, in a kind of traveler kind of way. <laughs> Not a bad thing to do, man. Yeah. I was wanting to have you on the podcast, wanting specifically to have you as episode one on the podcast. Nice. And I only learned this more recently in a text uh, chat we had. 2009, California. Yeah. Was a very important time in my life because it changed the trajectory of of where my life was going, and I wouldn't be here today if not for that experience in California. And that's where we met. We met on a bus on the way to Yosemite National Park. That's right. And I learned that that time for you in California was also quite instrumental in um, leading you on a different trajectory in your life. Can you elaborate? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So 2009 was 
an interesting year for me. I mean, I it was the year before that, 2008, was when I started working. I guess I, I should dial it a little bit back to university. So I went to university starting in 2006, um, and I enrolled in computer science. And by by summer 2007, I was hating that. I was just hating the hell out of that whole experience. I mean, it was just so uh, uniform. Um, everyone was the same. Coming from London, I'm I come from a kind of, as you know, it's a very diverse kind of place. And I don't just mean in terms of, um, you know, race or anything. I mean, diverse in terms of the kind of people and kind of personalities that you encounter in London. I mean, there are a lot of crazy people in London. Uh, and I like that. I like the crazy kind of the, the eccentric characters. And um, when I went up north to university, it was just dull. It was so dull for me. Everyone was the same. No one was eccentric. It just, I didn't vibe with it. So I left, I, I dropped out. I spent a year and dropped out. So 2008, I got a job in a pub, as you do, and basically just started saving money. I didn't know what I was saving money for. And by 2009, I decided what, I, what I'd been saving money for. And that was to do some traveling, um, which I hadn't done. I hadn't taken a gap year before. So, you know, this was kind of my first um, thoughts of, of the idea of traveling. And, uh, and I decided to do it solo. So that was something kind of surprised some of my friends. I mean, it wouldn't surprise you and it wouldn't surprise many of the people that we've met. But in the circles I was in at the time, it was, it was surprising to choose to do something solo. And uh, so I chose California, mainly because I've been working in a craft beer pub and at that time, 2008, 2009, craft beer was still something quite new, something unique. Like the pub I was working in in London was like basically the only pub at that time that had interesting beers. And a lot of that craft beer movement was coming out of California. I mean, that's where a lot of the innovation in the beer world originally came from. I remember I had this book. It was, uh, what was it? The Good Camera, <laughs> the, the Camera Good Beer Guide to California and the West Coast. So it had, it had Washington, Oregon, and California. I think it had Alaska in it and Hawaii as well, possibly. And um, yeah, so that, that book kind of, I started reading that and I was like, wow, these places look amazing. And these beers look like, at that time in the UK, we didn't have any of those kind of beers, um, like the crazy IPAs and the Imperial Porters and all the rest of them, you know. And I was just like super excited on top of the general kind of vibe around California, which is, you know, you've got to see it. It's in the movies, right? The palm trees and the just the whole kind of lifestyle and approach. And that was, that, was, that was what led me to my decision to choose California as my solo adventure. And uh, yeah, I took the plunge and, and I met you and <laughs> had lots of great experiences in California. And that was, it was a very kind of forming experience for me. And it gave me the confidence to do other stuff, uh, which was a lot more adventurous and maybe you might say dangerous, although it's not really. Yeah, so that kind of, the following year, I, w I went to the Balkans, you know, which was a war zone not so long before that. So I got the confidence to do that kind of stuff, all thanks to California. Uh, one thing that I really admired about you was that when I met you, actually, you weren't particularly very well. <laughs> you were quite ill. Yes. And it was such a, a shame, but also kind of funny in a sense. I don't mean to be harsh, but it was kind of funny that there was about 13 or 14 of us trying to go on this, you know, hiking and trekking and hopefully wildlife tour of Yosemite National Park. And it was over, a, you know, a long weekend and I was so pumped for it. And, you know, there was a, I don't know, about eight, eight different nationalities represented on our group. It was quite mixed and quite diverse. And, and 
and you couldn't even do it because yeah. you were so ill. You couldn't come out into the park with us. You just mooched around at the campsite all day. And yeah, and we all just sort of were talking about you saying, Oh, I wonder how Jay's going. <laughs> I hope he's not vomiting in the, in the toilet. And you know, and you just kind of, you dealt with it. You didn't let it get you down. You kind of accepted it and then you got through it and then you carried on traveling afterward, didn't you? I think that was part of my initial travel education. Um, the importance of looking after yourself. And if you don't do that, you know, if you push yourself, you might have some downtime, which I did have. Uh, and that was my fault because what I did was I was really enjoying San Francisco. I don't know if you did this because I don't remember doing it with you, but I hired, um, I hired a bike from the hostel and did like this huge cycling, like epic journey, including cycling over the Golden Gate Bridge and into Marin County and all kinds of, I can't even remember all the places I was cycling through, but I, 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 I covered some real ground. And San Francisco is a very windy city, but it was also sunny. So I was going along with my white Irish skin uh, exposed to the sun, not really feeling it because of the wind I was cycling. So the wind was giving me a cooling effect. The whole time I was burning <laughs> and I didn't know. And I was cycling along jolly, you know, over the Golden Gate Bridge, you know, having, having a great time all that while I was cooking. And uh, I had a horrific sunburn. I don't know if you, I don't know if you remember me having a sunburn when you met me, but I must have done because maybe the fact that you were so pale with illness took away some of the sunburn. Yeah, and you looked like a normal color. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that could be that that could be the thing, um, because it was pretty probably maybe the worst sunburn I've had in my life. I think, and it was all due to lack of experience. I mean, you just you learn these kind of things by you know trial and error. So making mistakes. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. And what I think happened was it was like extreme sunburn combined with maybe a lot of wind. And that just took my immune system down as, as it would to anyone. And, um, and I think that's how I caught whatever it was that I caught. It was, you know, I'm not sure if it, if it, it might have been swine flu. I don't know. Well, that's what we were saying on the bus. Yeah. I mean, it was a joke. We all thought it was a joke. Even I thought it was a joke. But when I look back on it, I'm, I'm not sure I mean, because I've never been ill like that. Maybe it was just because of how hard I pushed myself. Maybe that's why. But I was like completely knocked out, especially when I was in the camp, the, the campsite place. I, I think I slept through that whole weekend, more or less. And I got myself on some crazy American drugs, which was actually, that's one of my kind of funny experiences from America. It's just the, the amount of drugs those guys have. It's just insane. You know, I, I went to, it was first for my sunburn. I went to a pharmacy to get something to put on my skin because I was just, it was horrific. And they sold me, I mean, firstly, you know, you go into an American pharmacy and it's, the drugs are stocked right up to the roof. You know, you need, you need to get the drugs on top. You need a ladder. It's crazy. And they sold me this big, huge one and a half liter um, thing of bright blue gel. And it was basically like an anesthetic. It was like a really strong, cause I Googled it. Like after I told my mom, she said, oh my God, those Americans are crazy you need to Google what that stuff was. Cause I think I brought it home with me cause it was still, it was such a massive thing. So I brought it back. About a liter and a half you brought back with you. Well, I brought it back cause I, I had the space in my suitcase and thought, well, you know, if I ever get sunburned again, this, this might be useful. So I brought it back and my mom said, Jesus Christ, that needs to go in the bin and you need to look up what that ingredient is. And I looked it up and it was some ridiculously strong anesthetic. And there was me thinking it was a great remedy. I mean, like the side effects potentially were not good. <laughs> So, yeah. Do you think also that, you know, through, through fatigue, travel fatigue, and perhaps a bit of overindulgence on the beer front, the combination of that might have 
affected your immunities as well. Possibly, possibly, yeah. I mean, that could be could be the case. I mean, I don't remember being pissed drunk in California, although I must have been because the beer was so good. I mean, I was constantly trying it, so who knows? Maybe I was. I don't know. Yeah, I'm sure it was playing a role, definitely. Yeah, the illness itself could have been swine flu, I think. I don't know, because it's something I've never experienced. It was a really kind of deep level kind of fatigue and kind of flu, and it was it was weird. It was really weird. I mean, it's to the extent that I, I mean, I think that the, your memory of the van trip and everything is better than mine because I think even my memory was affected by how sick I was. Yeah, I don't, I don't doubt that. Have you gone back to Yosemite? Have you managed to actually see it? No, I've still never seen Yosemite. <laughs> You've seen the outskirts. You've never been inside the park. Exactly. And you saw it all, so very unfair. Well, I saw, I saw some of it. I was only there for a couple of days. So after the, the failed Yosemite trip, you went back to San Francisco. Yes. You were feeling a bit better yeah. almost straight away, or did it still take you a bit of time to get back on your, your traveling journey? I think that because California, San Francisco, you know, because the destination itself was so exciting, I think I just got myself back to normal fairly quickly. I think if I'd been at home, it would have taken me longer to recover. But I was so eager to just get out there and carry on exploring, so... I basically got knocked out for the for that trip, and um, and then I was back on my feet pretty much. So you sacrificed the Yosemite trip to heal and recover, so you could carry on and not waste any more days on your California trip. Yeah, and this kind of thing happens in traveling. I mean, I've got other examples from other places where things didn't go to plan, and that's part of the part of the experience. I mean, you can't you can't let those things get you down. You know, you just you just got to move on. You know. Yeah, that's true. And I think that's something that some people need to learn and some people just have instinctively. You just have to embrace it. Plans don't always go according to plan. You improvise yep. or you, you reschedule and you just get on with it. And the fact that you still haven't been to Yosemite, I find quite ironic. Maybe you will one day and there's always that opportunity. I think I have to. I mean, I think that, you know, visiting Yosemite, probably with my fam- with my new family in tow, will be a nice kind of closing of the circle i mean that's you know this is the the period of time we're talking about was for me the start of an entire lifestyle and set of experiences that led me to where i am now i met my wife because of traveling and now i have a one-year-old boy because of traveling so it's something quite very impactful on, on my life and for many others and for you i'd imagine too for sure yeah i mean i don't live in australia anymore when I was a boy, I, I guess I never imagined myself not living anywhere but where I grew up in Australia. However, I remember at university dreaming about not being in Australia. <laughs> I didn't particularly like university. Not necessarily the same reasons as you, but I, I did it and I graduated, but I didn't really buzz with it. And it was just like a means to an end and a rite of passage. I remember thinking, I don't want to be here. I want to be in the UK because I was able to do that with my dual nationality. Uh-huh. It was still a few years later when I ended up finally in the UK. In a sense, it was a bit more by chance than out of pure uh, need and want. I kind of fell into coming to London Heathrow because I found a super cheap flight out of Boston, Massachusetts, because it was on September 11. And I thought, Uh hell yeah, it's only 200 bucks. (laughs) Let's do it. Yeah. I want to carry on from the original roots of California. And uh, you said earlier that you graduated, let's say, onto more adventurous and 
you said perhaps more scary or just more extreme journeys. Can you sort of climb the stairs from California and some of the places you went to the Balkans and did some other places you went to in the future that were, let's say, a progression of uh, a traveler's life? Uh, the following summer, 2010, it actually wasn't a solo journey. I took a friend, but I was kind of the one in charge. I was the one that organized everything. I was the one that was basically setting up everything. And uh, we went to uh, Slovenia, Croatia, and Bosnia-Herzegovina. Um, so that was kind of a step up, especially the Bosnia part. I mean, it has a kind of, it had a, a media reputation as being a war zone. And I remember one of my friend's dad's, saying that we shouldn't go there as it was completely lawless and savage and, you know, we'll, we'll get robbed or shot or whatever. Um, but we did it. Uh, so we flew into, I remember we flew because we couldn't fly into Slovenia that time. We flew into Austria. We took a train into Slovenia and it was a great experience. I mean, Slovenia is, is a gorgeous country. I don't know if you've been there. I have. It's wonderful. So we hit up Lake Bled and, um, and Ljubljana. And actually my friend had a Slovenian buddy, they used to go to university together. So he was driving us all around. We saw pretty much the whole country. That was fantastic. And yeah, we moved on to Zagreb. Zagreb was, was great. And then the train, I mean, I guess the, the big experience of that trip was the train from Zagreb to Sarajevo in Bosnia, which was a, a real experience, a Balkan train journey, very slow train running on old Austro-Hungarian train tracks uh, into Sarajevo and um, the thing that I really liked about Sarajevo was the importance of the place for history as in the start of World War I the assassination of um, Franz Ferdinand happened in Sarajevo and it was very interesting to to see that street corner where it all happened and there's a little museum what they say is the same gun that shot him is in that museum but actually the real gun is in Austria apparently really interesting and from that from that point I really kind of got into history and history started to play a big role in, in my choice of travel destinations. So yeah, the following year was, uh, what did I do in 2011? I think in 2011, I didn't do any traveling. 2012, I went with the same friend to Morocco and that was pretty wild. Morocco is a pretty wild place. In fact, I'd say in some respects, it's still the, the wildest place I've been to. Um, just the amount of harassment you get on the street and it's yeah, nuts, crazy place. I imagine people trying to sell you stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not just that, but following you around and not leaving you alone and the, the extent that they'll go to follow you. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Crazy. Wow. Crazy, crazy. But it was so cheap, Morocco, that I still had money left over from my budget. So I went to Malta that year also, uh, which is where my grandparents got married. So that was a nice kind of place. My grandfather was in the Royal Navy, so he was stationed in Malta. So Malta was cool. That was a bit of history though. And then the following year was the big trip. I mean, by that point, I had enough confidence about traveling alone, I decided to go all out and I decided to do, to plan an epic journey to challenge myself. I'd always been interested in the Trans-Siberian Railway uh, and Russia, but then I decided, well, why not expand that? Why not, um, why not make it more than just Trans-Siberia? Let's make it, let's start in London from, from, let's start from St. Pancras with a train and let's see how far we can get. So I planned this trip, train, all trains, no flying, uh, London to all the way through to Beijing. And then I actually went on to Xi'an in the center of China, which was also by train. So I guess you could say that that's London to Xi'an in total. And then in China, I did a, I did a couple of flights by that point. I was a bit tired of trains. So <laughs> I'd, I'd, spent a, I'd spent a hell of a lot of time on trains by that point. So I treated myself to a few little flights. Yeah, I went to Shanghai, went to Taiwan, Hong Kong, Macau. Yeah. 
Wow. When we met in 2011 in London, so you'd done a bit of traveling already. We'd met a couple of years prior, and this is a couple of years before your Russian-Chinese Trans-Siberian trip. I remember you were speaking a couple of different languages that time in London. If I recall properly, when we met for dinner that time on the Thames, you were learning Russian in preparation for your Trans-Siberian. I remember you were speaking French quite well before then, and maybe Spanish too? Uh, No, Italian it was. Italian, Yeah. right. So you'd already had a fairly decent grasp of a few different international languages, and now you were teaching yourself Russian to help you navigate the Trans-Siberian Railway. How did you get on with that? I've always had kind of a strong language background, and many English people don't. And the reason they don't is firstly a lack of necessity, because you can get by with English pretty much anywhere. So the English are generally lazy about learning languages. And the second reason is that the English education system is really, really bad at teaching languages. They don't teach grammar. They think that grammar is uh, something boring and irrelevant and, and will turn people off from learning the language. But in fact, if you learn the grammar, it makes your life very easy. If you learn the grammar, you know how to build sentences and that's how you speak a language. So yeah, I mean, it's a mixture of mixture of theory and, and practice. And uh, the English education system focuses on just memorizing sentences, not understanding the structure of the sentence, how the sentence works. And that means that students just end up getting bored because who the hell wants to remember a thousand sentences? You know, it's, it's stupid. And I actually had a period of time I don't know if you know, but I was actually homeschooled for a while. I dropped out of school for about four years and I was taught by one of my parents' friends who was, um, used to be an Oxford professor. He taught me Latin because he was a traditionalist. And uh, at the beginning, I thought, this is, this is a waste of time. Like, why the fuck are we learning Latin? <laughs> this is ridiculous. The four years that you were homeschooled, what a grade range was that? Um, so I think it was age 13. It was from age 13 until 16 or 17. So basically high school. Yeah. So are you familiar with sixth form? You know what sixth form is. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. So for sixth form, I went back into the system. I did my GCSEs in some hotels in central London. It was weird, you know, like that was the exam hall. And for some of my exams, it was just me and one other Chinese guy. It was just like, you know, these are the guys who don't go to school <laughs> doing their exams in a, in, a, in a conference room in some random hotel in Russell Square. That was my GCSEs and I, I aced them completely. I mean, I outperformed everyone who was at school, which tells you everything you need to know about the education system. And, uh, and French was my strongest subject. My mum helped because my mum speaks French also. Uh, and I got 100% for my GCSE French, which is absurd. And that was kind of... Well done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And... Uh, I did A-level French as well and found it really easy. Basically, if you, learn, if you learn how Latin works, if you learn how structure of languages works, you have a really easy time and you can just ace everything. You know, like once you know Latin, you know French, you know Italian, you know Spanish, you know Portuguese, you even know Romanian. I mean, because they're all the same thing. They're all the same uh, language. So yeah, French and Italian, that was easy for me. Russian was a challenge I set for myself and that was a bit different because I had to learn a new alphabet firstly and the grammar is quite complicated Uh, but it's a really beautiful language I mean it's probably my favorite language that I have dabbled in I wish actually I'd studied Russian rather than another Latin language like after French instead of doing Italian I should have done Russian or something else I think because I had a lot of fun learning Russian and teaching myself was something I could do because I had kind of experience in that 
but anyone can do it. I mean, it's not just a question of having a gift or a talent. I mean, once you just figure out the strategy for learning a language, I think that anyone can do it really. So, yeah. If you commit yourself to it. Absolutely. Yeah. And put in the work. Absolutely. Like anything. Yeah. Like anything. So which language are you speaking in the house now? You speak English in the house. Uh, yeah. So w- with my wife, I speak English and with the, and with the baby, I speak English and he speaks gobbledygook. And, <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, with my in-laws, they don't speak English. So they speak Macedonian only. So I've had to learn Macedonian and my Macedonian. How is that going? Pretty well. I mean, firstly, Russian gave me a, a great kind of uh, head start with that um, because they use the same alphabet. I mean, they have a few different letters, but they use the same alphabet. In fact, that alphabet was invented by St. Cyril in Macedonia. So I mean, the home of the Cyrillic alphabet here. And so, yeah, reading was easy. Grammar is easier than Russian. And um, there are some little specific things which are a bit tricky. But in general, the language is fairly easy to learn. I mean, I'm doing well with it. Yeah, and it's really helpful when you have close relatives who are proficient and you can just pick up stuff. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, every day you can learn some new tricks or some new phrases or expressions. And yeah, exactly. It's yeah. more natural. Yeah, I'm kind of, I'm immersed in it. So, you know, if I go to the shops... I need to, I need to use it. You know, if I get on a bus, I need to use it. Like if I want to top up my Oyster card, uh, I have to, I have to do that in Macedonian. So yeah, I'm kind of forced to do it. So I do it. As somebody who's from all the people I know, quite a rarity in the extent of a natural English speaker having such great diversity in language skills. Do you think having an ability to travel and use two, three, four different languages makes the experience so much more authentic and rounded because it's more real in the particular environment you're in. Yes, I would agree with that. It deepens your experience and understanding of of where you are, the culture you're in, and it enables you to interact with people in a way that you wouldn't be able to without it. With that being said, if you just have English, you can have a fantastic time traveling and that should never put anyone off. You know, I mean, the fact that they don't have any other languages shouldn't put them off from, from venturing into countries where maybe most people don't speak English because you can get by. And I have done because, you know, I've been to so many countries. I haven't learned all the languages for sure. You know, um, a couple of years ago, I went to Georgia and Armenia and I know absolutely nothing in those languages. Although Russian actually helped because it's former Soviet Union, but still, you know, it's not, it's not a requirement, but what it does do is it, it gives you a deeper experience and it offers, you, it offers you the ability to have unique experiences that you wouldn't otherwise have. Um, an example was on the Trans-Siberian. I was in a, in a four-berth cabin, so I was sharing with, depending on how busy the train was, up to three other people. And at one stage of my journey, an older Russian couple uh, came into my cabin and sat down and... Uh, they didn't speak any English, of course. So we had to talk in Russian. And that was, uh, it ended up being a very interesting experience because even though my Russian was only basic, because I'd only been teaching myself three, four months from a book and a, a little audio course. So I wasn't really proficient, but I had enough Russian to engage with that couple in a conversation and to connect with them. And, you know, they shared food with me. And it was just a really nice interpersonal experience that would not have been possible if I hadn't learned Russian. And there were, there were a couple of other experiences like that, because in Russia, there aren't many people who speak English. 
uh, and in Belarus also. I think that it's, it's, it's really valuable and you, it deepens your travel experience considerably because interactions with local people is, is where it's at. I mean, those are the memories. Those are the things you remember. So you said you taught yourself uh, the Russian. Now, you had a, a, an old school textbook and an audio tape. Was that your methodology? They have an American audio course called Pimsleur. And it's, they have a very specific kind of style. It, it's a businessman kind of course, you know? So like they teach you how to, they teach you kind of scenarios, like business scenarios, like do you want to get a coffee after the meeting? And, you know, these kind of things. I mean, it's very kind of old school kind of business audio course, but the way that, that those courses work is very good because you have to reply. So they, they say, they ask you to repeat something and you repeat it. And then it's again, there's a lot of repetition involved. It's listening and speaking. And I think that the, the technique on those courses is very good. And I've used it. I've used it for French. I've used it for Italian. I've used it for Russian. And yeah, I've used it for, I can't even remember how many other languages. I mean, some I've kind of learned a bit for fun, like Hungarian, I decided to learn for fun because it was dubbed the hardest language to learn in the world. So I thought, okay, got to have a go uh, and learn some. I did the Pimsleur audio course of Hungarian and managed to speak to some Hungarian colleagues at the pub I worked at. And they, you know, they almost fainted when they heard it <laughs> because the, the course gets you to perfect the accent. That's the thing. Oh, yes. Yeah. They break the words down and you're able to mimic the accent very well so that when you replicate something that you've heard on that course, it sounds incredibly kind of almost scarily authentic. So yeah, these Hungarians, these Hungarians at work were, were, were completely shocked when I came out with some phrases. Brilliant. I think you've got a pretty good ear for it, Jay, anyway, because you can do a very reasonable Australian accent too, which I'm often quite critical of. Yeah, it's a little bit tricky to do, actually. <laughs> not bad, man. It's not bad. Um, with these languages, have you, have you come across uh, any apps that you could recommend? Or are you an old school kind of guy who, who likes to do it the old fashioned way? I have to say, I think I'm old school, although I guess I haven't really gone hard on learning a language since I got a smartphone. So the last time I was rigorously learning a language, which was Russian, it was before I had a smartphone. So it's difficult to say. I mean, if I had to learn something now, I might find an app, but I don't know any. The most recent language I learned is Macedonian and Macedonian doesn't have, because it's such a small language, it doesn't actually have any materials. I actually took some lessons here in Skopje with a teacher and also I get the constant exposure to family. So that's a bit different. There's no app, but there's also no Pimsleur audio course and um, even no textbook. So it's kind of a whole different thing. When you're learning an obscure language with only a couple of million speakers in the world, then it's a completely different ballgame to a mainstream language where there's lots of materials like Russian. Yeah, I think though the best way is full immersion and that's what you're doing in Macedonia as well. Yeah, full immersion and being forced. You need to kind of be in a situation where you're forced to get yourself to use it. And that's, that's where the real progress happens. Just like with, you know, with anything really. When you're really up against it, that's where the progress is. You know, like, it's, like kind of, it's like lifting weights in the gym. You know? It's that weight that you can barely lift that you really need to struggle with. That's the one that's going to make the growth. And it's the same with, with languages. It's, you need to get in those situations where you're really stretched and forced to push yourself to, to do it. I agree. Going to countries now, have you got an actual count on how many you visited? <laughs> well, that's the thing, you see, because I never know whether to count things like Gibraltar, Hong Kong, Macau. Do you count those as countries? They're technically territories. 
<laughs> okay. And Taiwan. Do we count Taiwan? It's a disputed country. <laughs> okay. Yes. I just say yes to all. And uh, what's what's your count? Oh, okay. Yeah, I think it's somewhere in the thirties. Okay. I, I mean, I can I, I can I can run through it if you want, but it's up to you whether you want to do that. <laughs> How about we go for? Have you got let's say a top three? Okay. So. China is a rich experience. The food is absolutely breathtaking. I mean, the food in China doesn't resemble Chinese food that you get in London or anywhere else. It's a completely different thing. It's fresh. The flavors are incredible. Perhaps it's best not to ask what exactly is in it. But <laughs> <laughs> all I know is the food blew me away in China, and a lot, a lot of the, I mean, the rest of the experience in China was just was incredible. I mean, it's an incredible place to visit. Everyone should visit China at least once in their life. I'm I'm certain of that. Russia for me was was very interesting, and I I kind of include Belarus with that because they're basically I'm still not sure why they're separate countries, because they are basically the same. And funny story actually, crossing the border between Belarus and Russia, I didn't know that they don't have a border, so they're they're like Schengen style. Like if you cross between Hungary and Slovakia, there's no border, right? Because it's all in the Schengen zone. I didn't know this was the case with Belarus and Russia. Uh, and I panicked because I was on the train. I was on the night train going from Minsk to, to Moscow. And in the middle of the night, I woke up and I looked at my phone and my phone had connected to a Russian network. And I was like, that's strange. And I, I think I maybe I looked at Google Maps or something and I saw that I was definitely within Russian territory. And I was like, what the hell? Have I entered Russia illegally? <laughs> Am I going to be arrested and sent to the gulag? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was crazy. But the reason I'm saying Belarus and Russia as one of my top countries was that that was it was a transformative experience because all of the media brainwashing about Russia and Russians was slowly dismantled in my brain. I went in there very scared because of the the general picture that Western media creates about these countries. So crossing the border, leaving Poland, leaving the EU, entering Belarus. And yeah, their border guards come on the train and they are kind of very brusque and kind of scary and very military style. So that's kind of, you know, that was an experience. But it was a, a slow experience. By the time I reached Mongolia, which was my country after Russia, all of my kind of misperceptions and false beliefs about Russia had been destroyed. And I'd come to love the Russian people. I'd come to treasure the experiences I had talking with them, um, understanding that they are just like us. Um, they are not our enemies. That was something very, very special for me. And Russia is still special. And I would like to return as soon as this coronavirus thing stops because I missed St. Petersburg and I really want to go there. Um, so yeah, China, Russia, plus Belarus. And then what would I choose for the last? It's not really a country. But it was such a special experience that I would have to say uh, that number three spot goes to Easter Island. Really? Yeah. For what reasons? Just the fact that it's so difficult to get there. I mean, not, not difficult, but you need to spend a long time in an airplane to get there. It's the world's most remote airport. It's essentially Polynesia. So it's a very unusual culture. You might have more experience being from Australia. I guess you might have been to some Pacific countries, but... I'd never experienced anything like that. Those statues are just incredible. When you see them, you just it's just mind-blowing. Really mind-blowing place and really special. I, I feel very fortunate that I managed to get there. I managed to find a flight that didn't make me bankrupt. Yeah. <laughs>
it's a once in a lifetime thing. I mean, I'm, I'm really glad I did that. Are there any new places on the wish list that you want to visit, perhaps with your family as well? Yes. I mean, there's always new places. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm still very much a fan of the ex-Soviet Union countries. I've been to many of them. I've been to Belarus, Russia, Ukraine, Georgia, Armenia, Mongolia, which was not part of the Soviet Union, but very much under the influence of it. And, um, you know, I'd, I'd really like to go to those Central Asian ex-Soviet countries, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, yeah, the, St- the Stans. <laughs> Turkmenistan looks completely mad. I mean, like almost North Korea level of totalitarian dictatorship. Yeah, Azerbaijan also I'd like to go to. And um, there's still some of Eastern Europe that I'd really like to go to as well, like Moldova I haven't been to largest wine cellar in the world in Moldova. Some obscure trivia. (laughs) I mean, that's me. Like, that's what I've become. The more obscure, the better. That's kind of how I've, that's what I've become these days. It's great. And I'd like to explore more of South America. I only explored some of that. I'd like to explore more. And Africa, I've barely touched Africa. So Africa's um, a whole continent that's still on the cards. And I've never been to Australia either. So that's got to be done at some point. Fast five. Five quick-fire questions require five quick-fire answers. My guests must answer five random questions about travelling without thinking too much. Are you ready for the fast five? Yeah. All right, number one, book or Kindle? Book. Number two, chain or independent? Independent. Number three, heterogeneous or homogenous? Hmm, heterogeneous. Number four, public or private? Private. Number five, mountains or beaches? Mountains. Interesting. Well, that's it. You completed the fast five. All right. Fast five. 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 I'm curious if there's a piece of advice someone has given you personally on your traveling experiences, or is there something that you've learned yourself on your traveling experiences that you want to share? Don't eat the salad. <laughs> <laughs> That is actually true. That's happened to me before. Yeah. I had uh, hallucinogenic dreams for eating a dodgy salad. Oh, wow. When I was in Pakistan. <laughs> hallucinogenic dreams. That's another thing. I was so... Actually, I've, I've been sick another time in a similar way when I had some bad chicken, I think. Yeah. And I was sweaty and having weird dreams of coniferous trees falling on top of me. What? Just like, <laughs> just basically coniferous trees with a life of their own, deciding to commit suicide by falling, di- uprooting themselves and falling on me and squashing me into the ground. It was proper weird. That's nuts. That's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. I've never, I've never had anything reach my brain like that. Um, but yeah, I've spent a lot of time on hostile toilets. <laughs> and I learned, you know, I learned my lesson. Avoid the salad. Um, you can eat the fruit, but only fruit that you peel, like bananas, oranges. Don't eat stuff that depends where you are. I mean, if you're in Europe, you can have salad. But in Mongolia, for example, in a nomad tent in the middle of the steppe, in the middle of nowhere where there's no soap, where they don't even wash their hands. And they prepared this um, kind of noodle thing, which was all hot. That was all fine. But then they, they, they diced up this cucumber and dropped all this diced cucumber on top. Unnecessary. I mean, from a culinary perspective. <laughs> unnecessary and i picked it all i picked each piece of cucumber off and didn't eat the cucumber and i was okay some other people were not okay and that came from experience (laughs) 
sometimes you know i love salad and macedonia is is the place for salad i mean it's stunning here the food here is great and uh, and i eat the salad here but if you go to countries like mongolia or morocco or those kind of places just skip it yeah. it's not worth it there's, there's some places <laughs> around asia as well and i imagine africa too where our stomachs yeah. and our immune systems aren't used to the the different types of microbes that you get in other continents and the consequences are quite painful yeah and sometimes scary because it's something you've never experienced before yeah you don't know what's going on and you're in a foreign place and you're freaking out a bit so you get a bit anxious it's not a fun time yeah food poisoning is not is not fun it's not fun i would not recommend that <laughs> yeah so you asked about things i'd learned that was a more light-hearted one but then i i guess the more kind of the deeper answer to that would be that things do go wrong and that you just have to kind of go with the flow. There are times when things don't work out when you're traveling and um, you just have to accept that and embrace whatever it is. You know, I mean, if you, if you get sick and you're stuck where you are, then make the most of that, you know, just talk to people or whatever you can do, you know, it's just things will never go exactly the way you want them to go. Yeah. So why stress about it? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's, doesn't just apply to travel it applies to life in general especially these times where everybody's plans are going tits up absolutely yeah some people are handling it really really well and some people seem to be not handling it very well at all it's a curious thing to wonder if these people who are getting on have learned a similar mindset to you you just have to just carry on yeah that sounds too cliche now with that uh that branding keep calm and carry on <laughs> There's a reason that that's popular because it resonates because it, it, there's a, there's a deep truth to it. So yeah. we'll have to do this again sometime. You have to come on again. Season two. Yeah. We haven't, we haven't covered everything. So <laughs> well, Jay, it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. For me also really good. Okay. Jay, take care, mate. All right. Take care. See ya. Thanks for listening to The Nostalgic Vagabond. My guest today has been Jay Canning. There are more episodes in this podcast series where you can hear different tales from other fellow travellers. Check them out anywhere you can grab good podcasts. And big ups to Tom Forfar for creating the soundtrack to the series. I've been Alan Hill. Until next time. Jay's Trans-Siberian Odyssey. Day by day. Get your journal out. We'll crack it. Day one. I got on the train. Day two. I was still on the train. Day three. God damn it. I'm still on this damn train. <laughs>